You are listening to The Pulse, Rod Murray's e-learning tech podcast. Number 205, Kimberly Timpf, Alcohol EDU by Vector Solutions. That short teaser was, of course, Somebody to Love by Grace Slick and the Jefferson Airplane. It was recorded at the Monterey Jazz Festival in 1967. That takes me back. In fact, uh, when I was in college, I almost saw them live, but uh, I couldn't get a ticket, and I listened to them play outside the venue. Of course, I'll play the full song at the end of my podcast. This episode is sponsored by D2L. You may know their main product, the Brightspace Learning Management System. I, of course, would only accept sponsorship from companies and products that I am very fond of. So please check out their website at d2l.com slash pulsepodcast to learn more. I also invite you to follow me on Twitter. My handle is RodsPods. As always, I post links to the things we talk about on my show notes website at www.rodspulsepodcast.com. In this episode, I interview Kimberly Timpf, who's the Senior Director of Impact for Vector Solutions. We discuss their Alcohol EDU program. Quote, Alcohol EDU is an evidence-based training designed to prevent risky drinking and other drug use on campus and help students better reach their academic, professional, and personal goals. We discuss Kimberly's backgrounds, a little bit of the history of Vector Solutions and Alcohol EDU, drinking and drug use on campus, the impact of COVID, the emotional and physical effects of alcohol, cannabis, and e-cigarette use. They produce video-based scenarios to coach students on bystander intervention techniques, for example. They support and reinforce the decisions of students who choose not to drink in college. Randomized controlled trials have proven the efficacy of alcohol EDU. So without further ado, here's my interview with Kimberly Timpf. Kimberly, thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me today. I'm really interested to learn about um, Vector Solutions and your alcohol EDU application. Uh, what, before we um, start, just a couple of questions about, about you, like where are you located? And I want to give uh, my audience just a little bit of a background on how you arrived at Vector, Vector Solutions. I am actually located physically in uh, right outside of Boston. And uh, our home office for Vector Solutions is in Tampa. Our higher ed office is in Cincinnati, Ohio. So we're, we're pretty much all over the place now. And one of the reasons I'm remote is because uh, last year about this time, we were, uh, I, I was working for a company called EverFi, working in their higher education uh, division. And the higher education business was acquired by Vector Solutions. And so, you know, as part of that, we remained wherever we were physically, and also a combination of that and the pandemic, obviously, uh, that made the most sense. Uh, so I have been doing this work now uh, for, let's see, I think I'm into 17 years, uh, almost 18 years doing, wow. uh, yeah, doing uh, educational technology. Prior to that, I spent uh, 12 years in higher ed. Uh, I was a hall director, which is the way many people in higher ed often start out, uh, but then moved into the prevention field, alcohol and other drug prevention field. Uh, and that's, as I said, after 12 years of doing that work, uh, then moved into my current space in educational technology. 
Okay, well, uh, like me, you've been in uh, academia for, for quite some time. Tell us a little bit about uh, Vector Solutions, and do, do you know anything about their history, how they came about, and how did they get into the business of uh, alcohol EDU? Well, I can I can give you a a, um, a deep history of Vector Solutions, uh, and, but I can tell you that I know one of the reasons that they were very interested, and they have been you know doing work in the higher education space uh, for a number of years. Uh, that is not how the company began, um, but there is a there is a long and involved history uh, of of how they began and, and some of the other areas that they work in. But being involved in higher ed, they recognized uh, the value of the work that we were doing in higher education over at EverFi, particularly around our approach to creating our courses to the content development process um, and our deep commitment to ensuring positive outcomes and ensuring that the courses have an impact uh, beyond just having students sit down and spend 90 minutes in front of you know a computer. So so that was something that they valued and and continue to value and uh, were very excited uh, to add to to uh, to their portfolio. Understood. So Alcohol use on campus has probably been uh, a problem for a long time. I'm wondering how your business has been uh, impacted by COVID. I'm sure that has led to more alcohol and drug abuse uh, among students. Is that is that the case? Actually, it's the opposite. <laughs> and there were certainly predictions that it would be problematic, but I think one of the most interesting um, parts of or uh, interesting outcomes of COVID or at the time in the moment was that the policies that campuses put in place that were intended from a public health standpoint, you know, well-informed uh, uh, policies and practices and enforcement of those policies around masking, vaccinations, um, you know, social distancing, all of those uh, practices they put in place also impacted uh, students' drinking behaviors because it changed the environment that they were living in. I remember a story uh, that someone told me about, you know, students having to remain in pods, right? They were asked to remain in the same group in their residence hall. They could only interact socially with that same group. Uh, and what happened was they were these smaller groups of students. So if there was drinking happening, it was it was happening in a very small group and in a way that where alcohol was not the focus of the gathering, it was the connection um, that students wanted to make with one another because they were in this situation. And uh, so I, I found that really interesting. So that what it did was mitigate the high risk use of alcohol. So even though students were drinking, it was not the focus of, of their gathering. Uh, it was more the social aspect. And that I thought was, was certainly fascinating in a number of ways. The other way that uh, COVID potentially impacted was the number of students who uh, deferred uh, college for a year. So you have a number of students who were the, the age uh, to go to college and had just graduated. Uh, and schools, of course, allowed uh, students to defer for a year if they, they wished. Uh, and what happened as a result of that is you had students living um, on their own. Sometimes they 
lived away from school. They were some of them held jobs if if possible. Some of them went to community college so that they stayed, uh, you know, academically strong it, before attending uh, the school of their choice. And all of this created a really different experience for these students so that once they arrived on campus, they were not as interested in some of the behaviors that students a year younger and sometimes a year older than them uh, were were interested in. They had kind they had sort of moved on from the I need to get crazy and go crazy and you know I'm away from home for the first time. Uh, all of those those challenges that students often face, but it it wasn't um, it just wasn't a priority to them any longer. They had lived through something and had a very different experience. And this is different than transfer students, right? This is also not the same experience because they they haven't been on campus yet. They're also not having the same experience as traditional first-year students who went right from high school into college. So there's a lot that COVID has done uh, to impact uh, drinking. And we actually saw Monitoring the Future survey actually identified that uh, drinking, high-risk drinking, is now at 24%, which is a 30 to 40-year, I believe, uh, low uh, for colleges and universities. So, wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's that's it's, that's not intuitive. Yeah, I I, I would have guessed that uh, there'd be more drinking um, in your experience. Uh, I, I assume now it's called alcohol the edu, the, the, which I'll get into and ask you more about the technology there. But uh, what's the relative problem alcohol compared to cannabis and other drug use? Hmm. Interesting question. So that's another area that COVID impacted um, use of cannabis also declined. And I think a lot of these factors certainly have to do with the environment that students lived in. Now, we know that nationally, there were a lot of increases in, for example, opioid use that tended to be in the non-college population, however. And we are certainly struggling with the fentanyl uh, issue right now in this country. And again, that was that was separate from what what is happening on college campuses. It's not that it's not happening there, but you know, there's, there's a couple of different um, areas that are you know, happening at the same time that don't necessarily overlap. But one of the things we found in terms of cannabis use is years ago, it used to be that there was an overlap between high-risk drinkers in particular and, and cannabis use. And we're starting to see that actually separate, uh, that students who don't drink are actually more likely to not use any other substance. So it's a it's a decision they're making on a more on a broader scale as opposed to just picking and choosing. Um, again, you know, doesn't mean it's not happening, but this is what we're seeing uh, in our data is that there is that that separation around cannabis use. Interesting. When I was in college uh, eons ago, cannabis was around, but the the percentage of uh, THC was so low compared to what you have today. In fact, there were some, the article was about how some students are getting really sick taking uh, products that are so purified that they're almost 100% THC, which I can't imagine. Uh, and, and they even talk about uh, addiction in some sense, which we never really used to talk about physiological addiction mm -hmm. uh, with, with, uh, with cannabis and marijuana. I mean, I, I, my PhD is in pharmacology, and we we studied this years ago. And uh, so I'm surprised that um, you mentioned fentanyl, which is 
maybe not as I think what I gather from you is, is not as uh, much an issue on campus as it is uh, students that are not in college, perhaps. But I would have expected that with this rise in THC content, there you would be seeing more issues around cannabis. But you say you're you're not really seeing that. There is increased use for sure, uh, and that certainly is a result, no doubt, of the legal landscape um, nationally and the increase in legalization across the states. What's happening in is particularly those states. Um, is that there is a perception that it is safe because it's no longer illegal. So there, that does impact the legalization issue. Does impact people's attitudes toward, um, you know, toward certain drugs and what, particularly at the younger um, ages. So age of first use of cannabis is also decreasing, and so we know from research and brain development that use of any substance early on, particularly if it's used often, does impact that developing brain over time. And so these are the the types of challenges we're facing. facing. And the THC issue, I've not heard 100% THC mentioned. I I know that when the the time period you're talking about, you know, 25, 30, 40 years ago, uh, we were talking about around a half to per, a half a percent to one and a half percent THC. Uh, it's now up around 15%. So even though it's not a hundred percent, it certainly uh, is monumental increase. And that's a concern, particularly right now where vaping of cannabis has become popular, the dab pens and those types of things. So that you've got higher concentration of THC that's being ingested in ways that increase that concentration or increase the impact of that concentration. And so certainly prevention efforts, uh, identifying some of those uh, issues for students is, is very important. Interesting. Yeah. This article um, I'm referring to talked about student dabbing and and their parents not figuring this out, mm-hmm. you know, because you can't smell it. It's not like uh, smoking a joint and uh, they can do it in a very secretive and quick manner. Just probably one puff of this really potent stuff uh, is is bound to have some some serious uh, effects. And, and, you, and you wonder, you know, I, I always heard that, uh, you know, your brain is not fully developed until maybe your you know, mid, mid to late 20s. So what this is, you know, having an effect on the intellectual uh uh, development of of these students it's it's kind of scary did you have any data or or information to to back that up so we know that there is uh that that there is an impact academically we know that this does affect uh students ability to uh to study uh a lot of it in some cases is is uh secondary it's a distraction uh you know the field, the, the research uh, has just started to really become much more prevalent because for so many years we couldn't do studies on uh, on humans, right? So now that we can, um, and I would say University of Vermont is doing a lot of great work in this area. Uh, they're one of the first institutions uh, to be kind of taking a real lead uh, on that. So, uh, so that would that's a great resource to check out, but. Uh, we know that it impacts academics. We know that, uh, you know, there's significant issues with memory loss potentially. And again, I, all of these have to be, you know, I, I present a caveat with all of these because again, 
these are, it's evolving. The research is evolving. It changes sometimes daily. And, uh, and so it's really important that as people are learning about this issue, about cannabis and about the um, impact and effects that we, that we make sure that we're looking at, uh, you know, sources that are credible. And there's also the impact around uh, driving, uh, you know, driving under the influence. Currently, we don't screen for cannabis. So that's one of those data points that's, that's hard to ensure we have the, the, the right information or all the information that's available because that generally doesn't get measured unless there's a fatality involved. So we, we have that, uh, that we need to, to do a little bit more work on. Uh, but I think probably the, the greatest area of concern, uh, at least from my perspective, is the impact, particularly with these higher rates of THC, uh, is the impact it has on, um, on mental health. We know that there is a lot of research around those who have a predisposition to mental illness, if they have a family um, background in mental illness, that they are more likely to develop that same illness or another pretty early, pretty quickly if when using uh, cannabis and that that really drives those, uh, um, you know, that predisposition to developing uh, mental illness. There was like no research for years because of the yeah. legalization of, of cannabis. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. So um, it was funny. I was just thinking you mentioned vaping and uh, uh, it's kind of ironic now the Federal government, no, the FDA just came out and uh, wants to stop uh, Juul, which is one of the Saw that this morning. most popular vaping products for, for nicotine and putting an end to that, which is kind of ironic since now, you know, what are they going to do? Now they're going to go to vape cannabis instead of nicotine. So what's what does the most harm? Anyway, that's a topic for another another kind of session. But let, let's uh, shift now a little bit to uh, what's your alcohol EDU, what the course is like, um, how you develop it, what's a typical format of, of that course? It's an online, interactive online course that uh, is designed to help college students navigate alcohol use or non-use on campus. And that's really probably, um, you know, the most basic description that that um, that I can give. More specifically, uh, as we we think about it, and I can get into uh, this is where I'll. There's a lot of information that I could could cover, and a lot of different roads I could go down. So certainly, uh, you know, feel free to uh, to let me know what you think is most relevant and helpful for our conversation. Uh, so we use proven theoretical frameworks uh, and, and best practice in prevention and instructional design. And that all works together to, with, the, with the goal of affecting behavioral change. Uh, and sometimes it's not just behavioral change. I think a key component is not all behaviors need to be changed. We have a lot of students coming in who, who have safe and healthy behaviors around alcohol use. So it's not just about looking at behavior change. And in fact, that's uh, that's a real key component of our course is we don't make assumptions. We don't make assumptions that all students already drink or eventually will. 
And we do that particularly because of what the data is telling us about this particular generation of students who are arriving on campus um, choosing not to drink. Doesn't mean they won't, uh, but for many years, the traditional approach to students who don't drink in terms of education is to teach them how to drink safely because eventually they will. Um, what we're hearing from students is that for, for many of them who are making this choice not to drink, uh, that that minimizes their, they feel that minimizes their uh, decisions, uh, that particularly students in recovery, which is a, a whole other uh, set of students that we are seeing more and more on our campuses. But I think it's important to recognize also that years ago, when students chose not to drink as they were arriving on campus, many of the reasons had a lot to do with living at home, you know, being, uh, you know, following the rules that were uh, that were set in, in the house or wherever they are, uh, you know, matriculating from. Now, those reasons tend to focus more on kind of their internal you know, they are internally focused on that choice. It's not, it's not an external motivation. It's internal motivation. I, there was a, a great quote from a student that we spoke with uh, for one of the courses who said, you know, we don't want to risk our future or financial aid on something that is temporary. And I thought, you know, that is a that really encapsulates this attitude uh, of this generation who are socially conscious, uh, you know, and uh, but also risk averse. These students were raised during the recession and they want they see higher education as uh, as as utility as this is what I need to do in order to get out, get a job and do that in a, with as little debt as possible. And so all of these, you hear that in that student's quote, we don't want to risk financial aid. We don't want to risk our future on something that is temporary. And so they, they have a very different um, perspective on the role of school, which ultimately impacts uh, the role of alcohol for them and just a, a general overall focus on well-being. So we recognize this in the course uh, and, and that really that research, that data, what we know about these students uh, informs the curriculum in, in a number of ways while remaining, again, consistent with those uh, theoretical frameworks that we know have an impact on behavior change. Interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm, a, I'm a techie at heart, so I'm always interested in digging a little deeper into the actual technology. So does alcohol EDU, um, is it built on... Um, a traditional learning management system? Is it sort of a self-contained system that, that a school can plug into their own LMS? How does that work? What I believe to be the case is that it does plug into their own LMS or it can. There's a lot of ways that, that schools implement this course. Uh, over the years, that has changed. And that's one of the reasons, um, you know, and there's a lot more now, a lot more options available now uh, than there were 20 years ago when we first started, you know, working in this court with this course. And uh, so campuses and Greek organizations who we also work with uh, have different ways of plugging that technology into either their current systems or as a separate uh, as a separate part. Can you give us um, a little bit more about the uh, format of a given lecture or course? Uh, are there videos? Uh, are there built in uh, self-testing uh, exams? Uh, is there any synchronous connection to an actual uh, instructor? Uh, what, what's the, what is the typical 
course look like? Throughout the course, uh, when I say interactive, there are a number of different ways that we engage learners. Uh, it is not a click the arrow and keep going forward. There are certain exercises that learners have to complete before being allowed to move forward. Uh, often those are video-based scenarios where we ask students, uh, you know, what would you do? And if the answer is not ideal, we will say, you know, try again. Here's why this is probably not the best answer. We are very careful not to say, no, you're right or wrong. Um, it's, there's always a, you know, we, we always consider that in how we, we frame those responses. But students will go back and select another response that is hopefully a better response and we'll get that feedback and we'll be able to move forward. Uh, there are video-based, uh, just uh, what we call student point of view videos where students every now and then uh, pop up as well as uh, professionals, administrators who uh, work on college campuses. So they present their particular point of view for about, about 20 to 30 seconds. And again, those pop up. We have students who you know, represent a number of different diverse opinions, experiences, uh, you know, attitudes and behaviors around alcohol, but also life in, in general. And that is one of the most well-regarded uh, aspects of the course. I think what the most highly rated tools by the students is the BAC calculator. We have two tools that really engage students. One is a pouring exercise where we help students to identify uh, a standard drink. We provide them with information on what a standard drink is, and then using uh, their their uh, computer, whether it be on a phone or on a laptop, uh, they can they can pour. And I'm saying that in air quotes. They can pour uh, what they believe to be a standard drink, and then the the program shows them whether they're off or not, and how far they are off from that standard drink. Uh, and it, we do it for wine, liquor, and, and beer. The other piece is that, as I said, BAC calculator. Um, that is provided immediately following the, the poor exercise and information on how BAC works, what BAC is, how it's, how it's uh, you know, calculated, um, what are the factors that impact BAC. And so what they do is uh, input into this tool uh, how a time period over which they drink their uh, their sex assigned at birth uh, and what they have maybe potentially eaten. Uh, and then they can change that scenario. So it can be for themselves. It can be for someone else. Uh, you know, there are, there are different inputs. They can kind of explore what impacts BAC the most. What are some of the factors that if I change the time over which I drink in particular, uh, you know, they're able to see that that probably has the, the, the greatest impact. I'm sorry, I missed what BAC stands for. What is that? Yes, I'm sorry about that. Uh, so blood alcohol concentration, which is Got it. <laughs> you know, how, how everything is determined from a legal perspective. Uh, so not only does this tool allow students who drink to assess and identify um, some of the, the physiological uh, um variables that impact BAC, but also gives students who don't drink the ability to do some work as well and, and experiment with that to, to for them to better understand behaviors of drinkers so that they can more easily and accurately potentially identify when someone's had too much to drink. If they're seeing a friend, you know, over the course of an evening and they're, they notice how much they've had to drink, they can get a sense of, you know what, I need to start watching my friend, or maybe this is time for us to go uh, and identify uh, those 
those particular uh, um, impacts. How about cannabis? Are there separate courses for um, other drugs other than alcohol? We do have a separate course called Cannabis, What You Should Know. Um, and we are actually in the process of updating this that right now. Uh, and that's going to be available in the fall. And that will not that will be more information narration based, a uh, little bit of interaction, but not to the extent that um, alcohol EDU provides. And it's a shorter, it's a much shorter, shorter course. How does, you know, being being somewhat um, familiar with how university administrations work, they, they want to know if there's a return on investment. How do you measure your impact uh, that that, uh, you know, that. That it's actually working. Mm-hmm. So we know from from specifically from a course perspective, uh, there are eight efficacy studies that have been done over the years uh, with with uh, alcohol EDU, and there are eight independent peer review studies, uh, and that includes uh, probably the most significant was a, a randomized control trial uh, done by the Pacific Institute for Research and Evaluation, and. The eight efficacy studies combined have actually earned alcohol EDU uh, the highest rating in NIAAA's alcohol intervention matrix, what's known as college AIM. NIAAA uh, being National Institute for Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. And the, the, the AIM, uh, college AIM is a comprehensive publication and website that schools use to identify uh, effective alcohol intervention. So uh, I think these are the types of results that speak to our commitment to efficacy, theory, and impact uh, and in, in the content development, actually, of all of our courses. The other piece is, so we know that the course has impact. We also know that any prevention efforts cannot be one strategy, cannot be one program. It is more than just a program. Uh, so, so it's very important that it be used as a cornerstone to a prevention strategy, and that institutions use the data that is provided through the course to help inform next steps, to help reinforce what they learn, what students have learned. And they have that information from the course. They see where students uh, have gained information and knowledge, what has impacted them the most, and they can reinforce or uh, you know, uh, add to uh, that information and knowledge. On a broader scale, uh, when we think of the ROI of, of prevention, um, what we know from, we're starting to see a, a growing body of research that is uh, showing us that prevention, the value of prevention to an institution's uh, bottom line. So we've looked at a lot of data. We've looked at what's in the field, but we've also looked at the data that we've collected uh, through our courses. And one of the uh, pieces that I think is most interesting is we we identified from our data that the students who received training agreed or strongly agreed that they feel valued in the classroom and learning environment. 70% said they strongly agree or agree with that versus 46% of students who don't receive prevention training. Uh, 77% say they're happy to be at their college or university uh, versus 49% of those who didn't receive training. And 66% versus 42% said they feel like they're a part of their college or university. And these are things that institutions, particularly alumni and development offices, strive for 
Uh, you know, they want to see that. They want to see that there is a direct connection. And again, what I believe this illustrates is what these what students are looking for is that connection. Receiving prevention training signals that their institution cares about their safety, well-being, and inclusion. And that means a lot to these students, particularly this generation. For alcohol EDU specifically, um, when we collected data from you know the more than 230,000 students who completed that course last year, we saw 67% said after completing the course, they felt more likely to complete their degree. 68% said they were more likely to perform better in their schoolwork. So academics, wow. retention, yeah, it, it's really amazing. Um, it's really fascinating, but it's also not surprising because we when we were uh, with EverFi, we were able to collect uh, data from high school students. And what we saw from students who were graduating, who were seniors who were graduating in college bound, uh, we saw that, you know, 82% said that safety, well-being, and inclusion, that those efforts uh, were as important as academic rigor in selecting a college or university. I mean, as important, that is, that is so significant. Um, and it's such a switch from, you know, 20 or so years ago. I don't know that that would have been on a student's radar in terms of characteristics that they are looking at uh, for uh, for higher education, for an institution that they are going to spend, you know, their time at. So, so we're seeing a lot of these shifts and seeing now because of that, some direct links to prevention work uh, and all the things that institutions measure uh, in terms of identifying the impact of this work on their long-term goals and institutional, you know, outcomes. Wow, that is impressive. Uh, yeah, it never occurred to me. I don't think uh, my former institution has a program like this, although it may have slipped by me. Uh, I assume this is offered uh, probably early, you know, with freshmen coming in. Uh, and is it usually uh, required, or is it only certain students? How does it how does it usually implemented? Our most recommended format for implementation is called pre-matriculation. So students receive the course prior to arriving on campus, and they have to they have to finish the course prior to arriving on campus. Uh, there are certainly stragglers that um, will will get it once they've arrived, but that enables schools to look at data um, about their incoming first year students prior to being on campus. Um, so it's in whatever environment they're taking that in now. There is a 30 to 45 day, what we call intercession period. And after that, they receive what's called part two of the course, which is only a survey. It's, it's actually just a survey. So we survey students before the course, immediately following the course, and then 30 to 45 days later. That data after, from that intercession, uh, after following that intercession period, is what really helps institutions identify the potential impact of their campus culture on, on students' attitudes and behaviors. And that is very significant because that is something that they can often, particular people doing prevention work, intuitively know the impact of the environment. But when you have the data to reinforce that, that you know, qualitative story sure. um, that you're trying to tell, it's it's very important. Very interesting. Yeah. Seems like an excellent approach. Um, I think we're almost at the end of our, our time period. I'm just wondering if there's any other uh, final words you would 
like to put out there that uh, something that we haven't uh, covered that you want my audience to know? <laughs> One final, I guess, parting thought now that I'm thinking of it uh, would be to really encourage campuses to look at how their efforts reinforce and support multiple um, experiences and choices of their students, particularly around uh, alcohol use and to not uh, fall into the trap that we have. You know, I've been doing this work for 30 years. And for many of those 30 years, the focus was to put the resources and energy uh, into uh, risk, mitigating risk for students who drink. And that is so, so important. But it has in many ways been done at the expense of reinforcing and supporting those students who choose not to drink. Uh, and and there is a lot of research to suggest that, you know, we are in, we have an opportunity right now to potentially shift what is considered the normative environment of a college campus if we work with those students and empower those students to help change um, that environment. That's not to say it's going to fix everything, uh, certainly, but but it could go a long way uh, to really our children having a very different experience than um, than we have had or that we had uh, when we were at college. Well, thank you, Kimberly, so much. I think this was uh, really enlightening. I certainly didn't realize, uh, you know, some of the um, the impact of uh, this kind of, of uh, training or, or teaching. Um, it sounds very important. Every school should take advantage of it. So uh, perhaps this will uh, help get the word out there. I hope it does. <laughs> so yes. thank you again so much. This thank was great. Thank you. Thank you, Rod. Appreciate it. That's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. I certainly learned a lot about how valuable training can be to help students handle alcohol and other drugs on campus. So stay tuned for the song, Somebody to Love. And until next time, have a great week.
That's it for today's episode. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to give Rod feedback. You can leave comments on his blog or send email to rod at rodspulsepodcast.com. The preceding audio commentary is the product of the author, Dr. Rodney Murray, and does not represent the official viewpoint of any other institution or company.